You can take your Bibles, you can open up to Hebrews again. We're just going to stay in Hebrews 12 this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5. Some of my reasoning um, is I'm actually preaching next week, so you'll be praying for me in Lincoln, filling in for a friend uh, in Lincoln while he is out. Um, And so... I didn't necessarily want to jump right back into Revelation this week to only be out again next week. Um, so that's part of it. Part of it too is, is, is I can have something I can preach that's not Revelation. I didn't want to jump them into Revelation either if that's maybe too honest and selfish of me. But I, I have been in, enjoying my study of Hebrews and so uh, hopefully uh, you're able to enjoy some of the fruits of those labors as we look uh, together this morning at... Um, Hebrews chapter 12 again. It's also interesting just being out there and um, I'm so thankful for this meeting space and just the changes over the last uh, number uh, really of years. Um, But also it's kind of funny that uh, you think about the growth of the church and uh, the most important measure of growth is spiritual growth. Um, It's it's not about nickels and noses as the saying goes. Um, I mean as much as nickels and noses is mostly noses that represent individual souls, those noses matter because those noses have souls. However, uh, the most important measure is, are we growing spiritually? Are we maturing together as a church? Um, But also, as I try to grab coffee after this, I think this cold weather, that's another measure. Apparently, we've had more people because the coffee's gone again. But that could be the 30-mile-an-hour northwest wind that makes us all go, can we have coffee, please? And uh, so it's just fun to see the Lord uh, just bless in many different ways. And I think seeing maturity in, in different ways with uh, individuals, and even later with the uh, two elders, Jay and Joel, just uh, see, see the way the Lord's worked. I'm very thankful uh, in seeing all those things. But let's pray together as we begin, and we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12 and see one of the ways that the Lord does grow us is not always fun. And so sometimes you have to pick up heavy things, break down muscle if you're going to grow. Lord, just thank you for our time this morning as we come to your word, and we desire to Um, Come to it in a way that is appropriate, in a way that is reverential, knowing that this is your words, this is your truth, that we would come and recognize this is not just advice being given, but this is truth being proclaimed, and that we would treat it as such. May we find comfort in the midst of it, even as I think it's clear the intent from the author, and as your spirit inspired him to write that this is meant in the midst of difficulty, these truths about the way you work because of your relationship with us should bring us great comfort and joy knowing that even in difficult circumstances, you are sovereignly in control. So thank you now as we look to this this morning. Pray that we would understand and that your spirit would illuminate our hearts and minds. I ask this in your son's name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever tried to nail a, take a nail and nail it into a piece of wood using something other than a hammer. I, for one, have done that many times because I'll look for what's most available. And if it's a vice grip, I'll pound away. If it's a screwdriver, it's fine. You guys have all been there. But it's not the right tool for the job. Probably a better illustration for me in my life is the kitchen. In that I've learned over the years that there are certain pans used for certain things, and my wife doesn't appreciate when I violate the usage of the right pan for the right thing. Um, I love our cast iron, but there was a number of years where I misused the cast iron because apparently you need to treat it right. It's seasoned. Uh, you think you're being helpful when you go, well, let me, I, I used it. I made a mess. Let me clean it up and use soap and water, and then you're going, oh, even my good deeds go, you know. No good deed goes unpunished. Um, But one of the classic examples for us is with that cast iron, is it's not the thing. It makes great uh, kind of sunny side up eggs, but it makes terrible scrambled eggs, right? Anyone who's tried, it makes a complete disaster. It's not the right tool for the right job. I see it with my boys. They go outside and they love the warm weather outside of today. And they've been out and they've been digging holes and our yard's big enough. I'm kind of like, it's fine. I don't know who's going to fill it in, and then you're going to fill that in. Um, but they'll use anything. You have a little weed puller that's maybe like an inch thick, and he's, you know, they're out there picking it 
at the ground trying to dig a hole and some of them will get the bigger shovels if they can. But anything they can do, they'll use the hole and you're going, there's a better way, but you know, you have fun. Um, I went out and there's like a three foot hole right now, which I'm a little concerned about. Um, so they definitely figured out what's more effective. But there's a right tool. We all understand that for certain jobs. When it comes to sanctification, when it comes to your spiritual growth, the right tool, unfortunately, from a human perspective, is discipline. Now, discipline, as we'll see, isn't just meant to be a negative tool. Um, not all discipline, and the analogy he's going to give, for those of us who had good fathers, not all discipline comes from a place of correction in the sense of it's always for punishment, but it's because you love that child and you want to help them. So don't think of it all as negative. We even have discipline in there saying we discipline even our own bodies. We make choices to do this or not do that because we have made a choice, say this is good for me or this isn't good for me and I choose to do this or choose not to do that. And all of that lesson comes in this context in Hebrews where we saw last week as we marched through Hebrews um, over and over again, this, this kind of exhortation. Hebrews is a sermon that it's an exhortation to endure. Endure. Remain. Over and over again, he's calling them back to this idea that there is suffering, there is difficulty, there is temptation, especially when it came to those first few early chapters, to go back to in this case, for the readers, Judaism. And he's saying, no, Jesus is better. He's better than the law. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the angels. He is something different. And he calls them and he shows them how the new covenant is the natural progression, the necessitated. You couldn't have the old covenant. The old covenant couldn't save. But that's why we have the new covenant, the fulfillment in Christ. And he's exhorting them because there's not only pressure that is social because they don't want to suffer the social disgrace and shame, but also there's external pressure, not only from their own community, but the outside community. And so he encourages them in chapter 11. We saw that a little bit briefly as he looks at how do you do that? Well, the name of the game is faith, but faith in something very specific, which is your faith and trust in the promises of God, your faith and your trust that Christ is who he says he is, that he is God, that he did die, that he did rise again, that he will return. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And he goes and shows how the saints of old, whether it was the Old Testament saints looking forward to Christ, and there's a sense we saw you look back to Christ, but even for us, Christ is ahead because He's in our vision as we move forward. But he draws on example after example after example to encourage us to say they have done before by faith. They have made difficult choices. And one of the running themes throughout is they suffered. You're not the first. In fact, the greatest example he gives is he points to our Lord and Savior. And the master is not greater or the slave is not greater than his master. And we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, verse 2 of chapter 12, the author, the perfecter of faith, who for joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And he exhorts them. He does that again here. And you can feel the, the sermonic language that this is very much him interacting in, in a way that would say, and sometimes there's an argument over, is the audience um, believers? Is it unbelievers? And I would say, and I'm just, I don't think it's lazy to say both, um, but in the sense that I'm preaching this morning. There is a professed, there is a visible church, and I would think Hebrews is presented in the same way. And so if the shoe fits, wear it for the one who has not truly confessed their sin and turned to Christ, that has not repented. And when we get to verse 14, and we see pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And if that scares you a little bit, hopefully it'll point you back to Christ because your sanctification didn't save you in the first place. It was what Christ did. And so there are things in this sermon for, for all of us this morning, no matter where you are in life and whether you are with the Lord. But it's this consistent reminder. Consider verse 3. Him who has endured. Look to Christ. And he endured such hostility by sinners against himself. And he, by the way, he is the one that he went through in chapters 1, 2, and 3 and showed you over and over again that he is the glorious one. He is the Savior He's the perfect lamb. 
The one who is the once and for all sacrifice for sin. Look at what he did so that you will not grow weary fainting in heart. The picture, and he'll kind of jump from the picture of running a race. He'll come back to it towards the end of this. But he's gone from running a race, which we still have today. They had in the time of the first century that we have races today. And he's going to jump from that picture to the one of the family. But he understands this life is one when you suffer challenges and difficulties. You keep running up against resistance that your tendency, all of our tendencies, is to grow weary and to be faint in heart. And so he reminds you in verse 4 that, look, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And it's not to say that maybe there's, they, these probably have perhaps not faced as severe persecution as others have. Maybe it's a point just towards look at Christ who died for a sin. And clearly if you're listening, you haven't died yet. But he does this not to... And this is where it can be a challenge as you look at different epistles in the New Testament. He's not doing this to undermine someone's faith. He's got people who are weary and struggling, and yet he's coming and saying, but I really want to encourage and lift you up. And that's where he goes with verse 5. And he implies with them that they have a memory problem. They have a memory issue. They've forgotten, he says, the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And so the answer to forgetting is to remember. But the first thing he calls for them to remember is not necessarily Christ. Although he's, of course, been there and looked to Christ, fix your eyes on Jesus. But here it is something you've forgotten, which is you've forgotten the scriptures. You've forgotten not only the saints of old who by faith did all these things, but you've also forgotten the nature of the way that God has worked and does work. The means by which he sanctifies, that is, he makes his people more conformed to the image of his son. You've forgotten that this is the way he's always worked. And so the first way that he's going to call them to remember is by looking back to the scriptures. He's going to say, number one, to remember the scriptures. His encouragement here is the reader's need to be reminded of what has been said in the past. And he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3 in these first two verses. And he says, you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Which is important. And we'll kind of hit on sonship in a moment. But this is your exhortation that my son, which if you know Proverbs, Solomon speaking to his son, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he flogs every son whom he receives. That is, he disciplines those whom he loves. Discipline is going to be mentioned throughout this little section nine different times, at least in English. One of them is kind of implied, but there's eight in the Greek, nine in English, at least in the legacy standard that I'm using. And it's all going back to this nature of child training, of instruction, of preparation for life. There's certain things that an immature individual, from the time they're little and as they grow, needs to know and needs to be instructed and needs to say, Do that, don't do that. That's this idea, that's this word that is used for the discipline of the Lord. That there is someone who is immature who needs to be matured. Someone who is naive, is kind of that language, or open, and he needs to become convicted and understand how to make good and wise decisions in the world. And the implication here is if you forget the scriptures— you will be discouraged. And so this is the read your Bible more sermon again. Because he's saying you have forgotten that even something as mundane as Proverbs chapter 3, that it says something about you and your identity, that you are a son. And if you are a son, which is what he's going to build the argument into, then don't regard this thing as lightly. Take this to heart. That is kind of stand up straight. Your dad is talking to you. Pay attention. 
don't faint, which goes back to verse 3. Don't grow weary. Don't be fainting of the heart. Don't start to think that maybe as a disobedient child or a disgruntled child would be that I don't think my father is right. I don't think he loves me, but rather go, no, of course he loves me. He paid the bills last month, right? Of course he loves me. He, he provides for me. He cares for me. He instructs me. Don't faint when you are reproved by him because of the relationship you have with him. In fact, the point is, if you love someone, this is very, it's not controversial in the church, but it's controversial in the world today, that love would actually compel you to say, don't do something you want to do. But that's what parents do every day. I know you want to stay up till four playing games and doing these things, but trust me, it is unwise and not good for you and will ultimately be harmful to you. And I love you, and I wouldn't want that for you. And the Lord loves those disciplines. Why? Because he is a father to his children. And he's going to discipline, and the nature here is one of corporeal, of, of the literally flogging whom he receives. That is, if he has to stop him from doing something, he will. But it's not out of this idea of that he wants to just cause punishment. This is a corrective thing that is meant for that it would be instructive, that it would be transformative in the way we should live. One of the implications of that for us is that you need to remember the nature of suffering in the scriptures. It's encouraging to go, well, maybe one, we haven't suffered as great as those who have suffered before, but also just to go, this is normal. And sometimes it's helpful that we look back and find out and go, oh, I'm not an exception to the rule. Because you might look around and go, no one's suffering that I know of like me, or no one's facing this difficulty like me. But if you look a little further out to the church universal or the church even around the state of Nebraska or the U.S. or around the world, you will find very quickly that you are not an anomaly. In fact, those who are not facing great difficulty and struggle and discipline, those are exceptions in church history, not the rule. The rule is this, that it is God's will in the church that we would suffer. In fact, that's pretty much exactly what it says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, that for to you it has been granted, which that's gift language. I don't want the gift, but it says, but it's been given to you not only to believe in him, that is, faith is a gift, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same struggle which you saw in me and now here to be in. It's tempting to go into a sermon on the question. I worked in college ministry for a number of years, and this is one of those questions that comes back just over and over and over and over again. What is God's will? Is it God's will to date this person? Is it God's will to marry this person? Is it God's will to take this job? Is it God's will to take that job? To live in this state or move in that state? To go to be a missionary or to stay in the lower 48? Those kinds of questions. And what I always go back to is fundamentally, it's a nature of the, the God's will is clear in the scriptures. It's not exhaustive though. In other words, there's a piece to human responsibility and to wise living. In other words, he doesn't tell you everything, but that's important. It's important what he says about his will and what he doesn't say. And he doesn't say, I'm going to tell you where to work. He's actually going to give you wisdom and instruction to make a decision. What do you think will most glorify him? What do you think will be the best fit for you? What do you want to do if your desires are genuine and there's no sin issues? But here, very clearly, one of the things that you can take to the bank is his will. It's been granted to you to suffer for his sake, to be an example to a watching world. This is not heaven. That's a reality. And sometimes we get it confused because life can be wonderful because we are made in the image of God. And even in this fallen world, there are wonderful gifts and wonderful things. But yet, we've been given not just belief, but also to suffer. Paul says, look at me. Did I suffer? Absolutely. And he says, we, you, as church at Philippi, they're saying they're no different. And the church today in Gretna is no different. And Jesus says so much, John 13, verse 16 there, that truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. 
we think we were going to follow Jesus and that we're going to live differently or suffer differently or the world will treat us differently than it treated him and the answer is it won't. In fact, the more you look like Christ, probably the more you will be an outcast and treated a certain way. We need to remember what scripture has to say about discipline, suffering, challenges, struggle. This is not abnormal. This is normal. And there should be some comfort in that, that this is par for the course. And you're, you're not out there on an island. You're not alone. You're just part of a long line, not only of the prophets, as you went through an 11, of the kind of patriarchs like Abraham, long line of God's people who have suffered in this life because this is not heaven. Not yet. That's Revelation, right? We're getting there in Revelation. But in this life, the call is actually then to look and see these trials as opportunities to glorify the Lord and to see his goodness. In fact, James 1 says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Very similar, 1 Peter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The race analogy, it's why... Most people say this is not a sprint, it's a marathon because the reward is a long ways off for most, not for all, because we don't know how long the race that we individually will run. But it is to say there's hope in the future. That's why you're looking out, you're looking forward, you're fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of the faith. But he's even saying here in these two verses, it's something that actually should elicit not grief, but joy. Consider it a privilege. Consider it a joy when you encounter the various trials. In this, you greatly rejoice, knowing that it's only for a little while in relation to eternity, and that it has its purposes, even here, as we'll see, in your own sanctification, in your working out. And that ultimately, what you desire as one who loves Christ, that it would result in the praise and the glory and the honor when he returns, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ. We need to know that. We need to know those promises. The only way you're going to know those promises, the only way you're going to be reminded in the midst of that is if you're in the Word. That it's close to, not just in that sense of mind and heart, but that it is something you've read, been reminded of. And the Scriptures are unfathomable depths of which you can mine and so you're going to be encouraged. You don't have to be in First Peter every month to be reminded of these truths because you'll see it elsewhere throughout as you grow. But you have to be in the Word or you will, verse 5, forget the exhortations in it. Obviously, the exhortation we're specifically looking at here is the exhortation of discipline that comes from one whom loves. That is, the one whom loves his son. That is, the Father. And so we not only remember the scriptures in general that he's going to quote, you need these scriptures to be encouraged, but you also need to remember the nature of sonship. That it's an identity issue, that you are a son. Before the ladies get too upset, in the first century, you want to be a son, not because there's anything superior about a male chromosome. It is to say, though, that's the way things passed. Sonship has to do with inheritance when you look at Peter, when you look at Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, that we have an inheritance. It's the sonship that it passes to. And so this language is you want to be the one who is the inheritor. And so he uses the sonship language here to say, listen, a father loves his son, and if he loves him, he disciplines him. And you need to remember when you face discipline, and we'll look at a couple different kind of ways that we experience that discipline— it always comes in this as a believer. It's through this relationship. It's always a loving father to a son. And so he reminds us here in verse 7 of that relationship that it is for discipline that you endure. Interesting way of putting it. I mean, well, what does discipline get out of it, right? 
But he's saying this is purposeful that your endurance that I've been looking at and encouraging you in remain steadfast, endure, hold fast to the truth. He's saying that's what the discipline is to encourage to, to you in. That God deals with you as with sons, which is very different than dealing with a stranger. And he asks the question rhetorically, what son is there whom his father does not discipline? You may have been in the grocery store, or you may have been at a baseball game, because we're ramping up the baseball season for my family, or in my case, I'm helping coach both boys' teams. And you may have a kid that you would like to discipline, like your son, but you can't. It's interesting because I have certain tools that I can use with my own children. One of them, of course, is just the relational aspect that we have together. But I remember last year, we had multiple games where kids were falling asleep in the dugout at noon on a Saturday. And you thought, what's going on? And you kind of found out they were up and they were playing video games until like 2 or 3 a.m. And I mean, these are 9 and 10-year-olds. And I'm going, man— and my boys are going, that's awesome. I'm like, no, no, you, you, you can't do that. It's locked down. You don't know the password. But you can see where you go, okay, well, there are different parenting approaches being displayed everywhere you look. And I would like to someone say, hey, this isn't good. You're falling asleep in the middle like, of the game. This isn't healthy at all. And that's somewhat of a course, if you're not, you know, if you don't play well, that's not the end of the world. There are other things that have severe consequences where the text goes, because obviously, ultimately, undisciplined children could do and make life decisions that have massive consequences. And those little things end up building into big things. But God loves you, and he's not going to allow you to live in sin or even live in immaturity, which is kind of the distinction we'll see. Because it's not just always corrective, but it can be very much where we'll see it can be instructive as well. But this is the verse 7, that true sonship always will involve discipline. And verse 8 continues on that discipline only happens when they're true, legitimate heirs. If you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, so he's saying, that is, if you are in Christ— you all are in this, then you uh, were without discipline. You are illegitimate children and not sons. And so he's saying this is a mark of the true believer, one who is disciplined. If there's no discipline, if there's no growth, he's saying there is an issue here and a question of whose son are you? Furthermore, verse 9 we had earthly fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Should we not even more, should we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? That is to say, you have even more reasons. And so I know everyone has a different relationship with their father, and, you know, we're all human beings, and I'm not a perfect father, and all those things. But it is to say, many of us love our fathers. They're not perfect, but he's saying, listen— you had earthly fathers who helped you mature. They did different things. They withheld, and maybe you didn't understand at the time. Um, I know now as a parent, there are certain things that I can look at and go, oh, when mom and dad said, someday you'll understand, I'm there. And I go, I get it. Those are difficult choices you have to make. But I now understand why you made them. And, and it was a respect for and a love for our fathers. And he's saying, how much more should we love respect, be subject, be submissive to the Father of Spirits. That is, go ahead and come underneath those trials and tribulations and go, this is what the Lord has for me. What can I learn? Because verse 10, there are greater lasting effects from that discipline from God than from any discipline you got from an earthly father. Because he says, verse 10, they disciplined us for a short time. So I don't know some level, and you, know, you get a little more freedom as you age, which is appropriate, and some of you are probably out of the house at 18. You know, I know there's people staying a little bit longer these days, but it is to say, relative to your life, you only spent so much of it under the parent's roof, under your father's roof, and it seemed best to them. They, they instructed you as best as they could, but 
He's saying the discipline that you get from God, but he, that is, God, disciplines us for our benefit so that we may share his holiness. This is a longer lasting effect. This is eternal. This is eternal life changing realities. And you need motivation. Why be holy? We're going to see a couple of those verses as well. But it is to say God has prepared us for those things because we are his sons. And it has greater lasting impact for eternity than the short time you were under your own roof. And it should lead us to praise God and go, okay, I trust in his purpose and in his plan. Because in the verse 11, he goes on to say, all the discipline for the moment, this is common sense, doesn't seem very joyful. Which is exactly how everyone responds to James 1 and 1 Peter 1 because you go, that's hard. Right, it is. Because all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Even as a parent. When the parent says, this hurts me more than it hurts you, there is a reality in which that just is true. It's going, I don't like to see my kids sad. I don't like to see my sad kids discouraged or angry with me. But sometimes you go, but this is the right thing to do. And it involves that level of discipline and consequence. And he's saying, it doesn't seem joyful, but sorrowful. But to those who have been trained by it, i.e. mature adults, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And you can look back and you can go, you know what? I remember when mom and dad said I couldn't drive halfway across the country by myself and do X and Y. And, you know, I'm thankful they didn't let me do that. I'm thankful they had some rules and some rails that protected me just in the earthly sense. And then how much more are we going to be thankful and praising God that he brought something in that caused us to grow, to mature, to deal with things that we, without any other tool, without the tool of discipline, we never would have dealt with in our lives except for that obstacle, that suffering, that challenge. And therefore, we're going to see we should move forward. But the sonship reminds us that the relationship of discipline comes in many different forms. He's never, as any good father, God the Father, is never going to discipline us out of some level of hatred. No, it comes out of a loving relationship with a child, with the son. It could be corrective. That is true and that is a reality as you look at the scriptures that, that he doesn't want you to continue in sin. And if there's a sin that you continue to deal with, you're going to keep repeating that class. You might go, well, I just feel like I, the Lord's been teaching me about patience for the last 20 years. And you go, well, sometimes it's because we're not fast learners. And so it could be corrective that there's a sin issue that needs to be dealt with. Think of multiple examples from that list of Hebrews chapter 11 of people's lives. Or you think of the life of King David. We're talking a little bit of narrative and how to look at narrative in the Sunday school class. And how do we study our Bibles? And you look at the life of David and it's, it's not simple. You, you can't just take a story of David and detach it from its context. That is to say, we don't want to get to a place where you read the stories of the Bible without understanding, oh, there's something going on in a bigger picture. It's not all about me in 2023, but actually God was doing something in God's people through David. And the real hero is actually God, not simply David. But you sometimes can hear the be like David. And then, of course, you're going, well, be like which David, right? Because there's different Davids. And some of them aren't very the ones you want to mimic and copy, even particularly towards the end of his life and end of his reign, he's disciplined by the Lord. So you go, even David, who seemingly has been disciplined, made foolish decisions along the way, who's characterized from the beginning as a man after God's own heart, still in the end, sinfully numbers the people. And God brings and disciplines and brings a plague. Actually, he's given three choices, and David chooses that one probably because he thinks it's least impactful. But the text says that 70,000 people are killed. And so it's pretty impactful. And so just like with children, discipline can be corrective. Most maybe of the times, especially with little kids, it can be corrective. But very oftentimes it can be preventative. 
And by that, I mean that it's not necessarily a sin issue. And so sometimes we want to draw straight lines in life. And I understand the desire because we want to understand everything. Um, but it's not a straight line that you are suffering because you sinned, or this person's suffering because they sinned, or this tragedy happened because this person was in sin. It doesn't work like that. And we have multiple examples in the Old Testament as well, where you can see that it's not wise to draw the straight line. You think of Paul. He's given the thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Why? Well, it seems to be that he's given this vision. He's caught up into heaven. And if he doesn't have this thorn of the flesh, which depending on how you understand that, and I think it's probably an actual person who's persecuting him. um, If that doesn't happen, there's a temptation that he will become prideful of all that the Lord's given. And it keeps him humble, keeps him in weak. And he then says, the Lord told him when he says, remove it, remove it. The Lord's response in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 12 is, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. It wasn't that Paul was in sin per se. I mean, he's human obviously, but it wasn't, you couldn't draw the straight line from a, some dominating sin in his life. But the Lord loves to Paul and wanted to keep Paul humble and fit for ministry. And so he brought this into his life. And Paul presents the kind of perfect response of how do you view that? You say, well, that's why the Lord works. He'll work through my weakness. But also could be not only corrective, preventative, but thirdly, it could be educational. It could be instructive lessons that you need to learn to grow spiritually, to be more like Christ. Love God, love your neighbor, as the scripture says. Think of Job in that way. There's nothing that we're at least told. I mean, I know Job's a sinner because he's human. But you're not told anything in the first chapters of Job that, oh, this is why. In fact, Satan brings him up as, or God brings him up as a perfect example. And Satan says, wait till I, he suffers. Then he'll curse you. And of course, God says, okay, let's, let's it happen. But it is to say, it's not necessarily corrective in Job's life. It's not even really preventative. It just seems to be by the end of this, it's going to be instructive for Job. And it's going to be instructive in that way, the book of Job, for us, for generations of God's people to come. Taught Job who God was. Taught Job to not question God and go, well, what if and why and why this severe? Because that's always the challenge when it comes to suffering and difficulty is we can maybe get to the place where, okay, fine, we live in a fallen world. Suffering happens. But then, of course, the questions start to flow and come and go, well, why so much? And why this severe? And why this and not this? And why this person and not that person? And that's where you have to come back into Job and go, but Job is saying, or at least teaching us, God is God. We weren't there when the world was made. As we learn the nature of who God is and and to trust him in the midst of that, And it's not that everyone's life boomerangs around like Job's by the end. And Job is restored sevenfold. But it is to say we trust by faith over and over again by faith that the Lord is doing something in us that is for his glory and for our good. It all comes back to trusting him. So not only remember the scriptures, remember sonship, but thirdly, remember the outcome of your sanctification, the outcome of your sanctification. That is, this whole thing has purpose, this discipline, this instruction, this maturing, which can be difficult, growing pains. I never had any of those. I know some of you did. I never grew fast enough, which is just the reality of my life. But it can hurt. But there's purpose, and you're going to get something out of it. And so you're getting stronger. And he says that, verse 12, He moves into preaching mode and says, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Just takes a quote right out of Isaiah and just to encourage in the midst of that and to say, listen, learn from what God is doing. Learn from God in the context of Isaiah. Learn from God's judgment. Be encouraged that his future salvation, he will deliver the remnant in Isaiah is what he's talking about in the specific context of that. And he's saying, remember, who God is, what God is going to do, that he is your father, that he does have your good in mind. And then this picture of strengthening the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And he might even be here picking back up the running analogy to say, okay, you're at, trying to think what's a, you know, marathon, whatever, you know, 
I don't know when you hit the wall. I've never ran one, but you know, I don't know what it's, mile 18, mile 19, mile 20, something like that. You know, you're going, okay, I, I, got, I hit the wall. This is the moment. He's saying, you've hit the wall. Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, not by some exercise, but by truth that God will deliver his remnant in Isaiah. But of course, here, Paul, or the author of Hebrews, is bringing it out to say, he will strengthen you, his church as well. Make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Seems to be even a, a corporate aspect here to verse 12. Strengthen the hands that are weak. That is not just your hands, but looking at the church, that the hands that are weak, the knees to come alongside, strengthen one another with a goal of this idea of healing. Don't just not learn the lesson so that you're going, uh-oh, they're lame. Just sit it out. Don't worry. Maybe it'll fix itself, but no, rather be healed. When you think of a direct analogy towards medicine, there are times where it's, it's, it's tough. You go, um, a lot of people that have broken bones, you kind of have been through that where it actually is more painful when you go into the doctor's office than the actual break. Because, like, yes, it broke and it fractured, but when they go back in and they have to either break it back or put it back or set the bone or whatever they're going to do, it can even be more painful. But you want it to happen because they're telling you, don't worry, I know this is really painful, but we're going to set it so that it'll heal and that you'll be able to go back to whatever, you know, 100% was before. It's the same idea here. There's pain and there's difficulty, but do it with a focus on healing. Lest, the idea is, if you don't do that, things are going to get worse than they already are, and it moves you back into that race picture. Pursue peace, 14, with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Seeing that to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. And that also there be no sexually immoral godless person. He's going to give us an example of the brothers, the twins, sons of Isaac. So it's Abraham, Isaac, and his two twins, Jacob, Esau. And he says, don't be like Esau. And so we had examples in chapter 12. Probably as close to get it. You always be careful with the be like kind of anything. Be like Jesus has is, is got to be the point, right? At some point of every sermon. But this is definitely a don't be like Esau moment. Who is representative of a godless person who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. And so, 15, verse 15, beware of the defilement that comes from within. This idea that it's going to spring up bitterness, causing trouble. And that bitterness is going to cause many to be defiled. We understand that. It's very easy for trials to make someone bitter. I tried to find the quote, and, and I couldn't find it. I mean, it's not everywhere from Forbes to all kinds of random things. But if you've heard the quote before, um, I saw it in some commentaries as well. But that trials either should make, trials should make you better not bitter. And it seems that even Forbes magazine and others recognize that there is challenges that everyone faces, and they're saying you can't let those things make you bitter. But this is more valuable than advice coming from the world, but from God himself saying, look, the root of bitterness can spring up and cause trouble because you have questions and you are bitter at God and bitter and distrusting of what he is doing. And maybe so bitter that you'll go out and try to say, you know what? I'm going to take whatever it is. I want pleasure and God isn't giving it to me. So I'm going to go find it my way. I can't be successful being honest and pursuing the Lord. So I'm going to do what other people in quote unquote whatever profession and be dishonest because they seem to get ahead in life. And he says, no. Many have been defiled that way, but don't let bitterness spring up and cause the trouble. 
Esau seemingly didn't value sonship, which is interesting here. He doesn't value the sonship. If you go back to the story of Jacob and Esau, it was Esau who did not value. He, he was the oldest. And we already knew from when they were born that it was Jacob who was going to be greater, which of course is back to the way God works. He doesn't pick the oldest, the one that you would expect. But Esau even likewise, it's kind of interesting of the God's sovereignty. It's like God is going to he chose Jacob. It's clear. You go to Romans 9, he chose Jacob, not Esau, but yet also Esau. He, he doesn't necessarily come out smelling like roses. I mean, he's, he personally says, no, I will sell my birthright. And he does so, which is crazy. He sells his sonship for food. There's a picture of the flesh. How easy it is to say, I'm hungry. I want this right now. And that's immaturity, Right? I mean, that's immaturity at its finest. That's youth. I want this now, and so I'll give up future blessing. The person who says, yeah, I know I could inherit 10 million in 10 years, or I could inherit 100,000 now. I'm like, give it to me now, and I'll spend it. And it's going, well, that was a really silly thing to do, but that's what an immature person does. So avoid the example of Esau. All that is to say, this is the sermon This is him calling and this is him making a plea to those that are sitting out hearing or as this is being read as it is passed around to encourage them, endure. But also, hey, check yourself, check your life. This whole discussion here of this outcome of salvation, you you do need to make this distinction. So sometimes the phrase is used, fruit not root. When we're talking about sanctification, we are talking about fruit. We are talking about not that you're saved. Because it's clear you're not saved by your sanctification. That's different. Justification is by faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8 says pretty clearly, but I think this is a helpful one because it's also going to help us see that it is, yes, it is a gift. Yes, you are saved by faith alone, but you're also saved with a purpose. Because he says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. So that's pretty clear. You didn't, and you cannot earn your salvation. But he also goes on to say, for we, verse 10, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And so, Yes, you're not ever going to be able to work your way into heaven. And I don't think verse 14 is meant to say that, you know, you can lose your salvation. And there's multiple places in Hebrews that that kind of question pops out. But it is to say the assumption is both these are true. That yes, you've been saved by faith, through faith, but it's a gift. But also he prepared you to do good works, to bear fruit, and again, the distinction is important, but it's also too important to emphasize that the reality is there is meant to be fruit in the Christian life. Philippians 2 is one of my favorite places to look at, which is Paul there the, describing this in a way that kind of helps me because you start to ask, is it is the Lord then or is it me? And the answer is both. Look at verse 12. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so a very clear call, you get to work, which is where Hebrews is at, right? Endure, get to work. Look at the discipline of the Lord and grow and learn and don't be bitter, but rather strengthen your hands and your feet and get to go. Get running, endure the way Christ endured. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But then it's also true, verse 13. Who's doing it? Well, it's God who's doing it. And so you don't get the credit for it. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so it brings you back to that same reality that you need to remember that there is a purpose, that you were saved to something, not just from sin, but you were saved to being sanctified. You were saved to be his workmanship, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. 
these things prepared. And we want to be, even if it's difficult, we will glorify the Lord in those things that are difficult. And it's the only way you can come out the other end of whether it's James or whether it's First Peter and go, oh, that's how I can consider all these things joy. That's how I can go about rejoicing in the midst of struggle and pain. You look at these things, the reality is it's difficult to accept, but discipline is the right tool for the job. And the job is you, your sanctification. The job for little children as parents, that's why at some level, I'm, you know, every family's different, every kid's different. I'm all for parenting individuals, right? They're not drones. However, it, it's got to involve discipline at some point, right? Because you love them and you got to teach them, do this, don't do that. And the same thing is true of us as believers. God is working to discipline us in every thing you're facing that is difficult, that is a trial, you have to look at it from that perspective and ask the question, what is God doing? And be open to making change. Is it corrective? Maybe. Is it just something preventative where, well, look where I would have been or how prideful I could have been if that happened and praise the Lord for that. Or if it is just something that's more instructive, educational, you go, well, you know what? I'm thankful that I, I didn't like this at all, but I did see God differently as I went through it. It's not easy, but the whole comfort here is that it's part of a relationship we have with him as father. And that it is not easy, but it is part of God's sovereign plan. It's part of his will that we would suffer, but not so without the one who holds us, who keeps us, who loves us as a loving father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we can be reminded of your love for us. And that really is seen here dripping through that we see things like discipline and we see correction and we see even things that seem fearful in 14 of the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord, but yet we know that it's all undergirded by this love that you have for your people, a father's love for a son. And so give us that perspective as we look at the challenges of life, that we might look for how can we learn, how can we grow. If there's behaviors that need to be changed, Lord, show us them. If there are things that we believe that are just not true about you, about your word, about your world, that you would show us and that we would change those things. That we might see all of these things through a lens of Scripture that is true and right and good. And that we would trust by faith, as we've seen, in future promises that you are good. That you will work all things together for our good and for your glory. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen.